Welcome to the podcast, today's Voices of Conservation Science from Montana State University in beautiful Bozeman, Montana. We are here in Studio 300 Lewis, and I'm Chris Guy, your host for today's podcast. This podcast focuses on people doing science that's then used to conserve natural resources. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Today I'm here with Tanner Cox, and he is a graduate student at Montana State University in the Department of Ecology. Tanner, how are you doing today? Good. How are you, Chris? Good. It's nice, uh, kind of a nice day out there. I think there's a uh, uh, winter storm warning or something like that coming in, but uh, I'll take the, I don't know, what is it, maybe upper 30s today, low yeah, 40s. Yeah, cooled so I'll off take a little that. from last week, yeah. but feeling pretty good. Yeah, that's nice. Um, so can you start off just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Um, so I grew up on a ranch near a small town, Twin Bridges, Montana. Um, growing up, I was active in sports, 4-H, and kept pretty busy on the ranch. What were uh, some of the sports you were active in? Um, in middle school, I played basketball, football, and a little bit of track. And then in high school, I just did football and a couple years of track. Yeah. So guessing football is your favorite sport. Yep. Yeah. What'd you do in track? Um, it varied a lot from year to year. I started <laughs> out uh, I'm a little bit more of a long distance runner, but I don't like it that much. So I did 300 meter hurdles for a while. Oh, um, hurdles, man. And then I ran the mile and the 800 at different times. Oh, yeah. yeah, I did the mile and 800 in track. And, man, the hurdles, I could never could never do that. That's, that's, that's a tough sport. Yeah, yeah, I was pretty good at jumping the hurdles, but far too slow for a short race like that. <laughs> so then after high school, what would you do? So... When I got out of high school, I'd always kind of known that I wanted to go to Bozeman for school. Um, I came over to MSU thinking I'd do something with fish and wildlife management, but I didn't know exactly what. Um, I actually started out thinking I was more interested in being a game warden, but after my first year in the program, I started to lean towards fisheries, and I completed that degree in 2017. And so, you know, you talked about, um, you know, coming to MSU and, and then getting in, in the interest in fisheries. What compelled you to pursue this career in conservation or this interest in fisheries? Yeah, so initially I think I was interested in conservation, um, mainly just from all the opportunities I had growing up. There was a river that ran through the ranch. It's called the Beaverhead River. And I spent a lot of time fishing on it with my grandmother. Um, besides that, I hunted a lot with my brother and my dad and was just always out around fish and wildlife. And I think that's really where it all stemmed from. Yeah. And so yeah, you kind of touched on it there, just some folks that were maybe instr instrumental in getting you um, involved. You talked about uh, your grandmother and, and she took you fishing as well? Yeah. Um, grandma and I spent a lot of time fishing and she was always really interested in nature and would take time to go over just, uh, basic things with me, like what kind of fish we were catching. And she might pause while we were cleaning our catch for the day to talk to me about the anatomy or 
if I was curious, she might try to find a certain organ or something to show me. Um, yeah, that's, that's great. So what do you, what do you think inspired your grandma to, to be interested in fish? Um, I think growing up, she, she actually was in the children's center near Twin Bridges for a while. Mm-hmm. And when she left that, she moved to the ranch that I grew up on. Um, she had foster parents there and that family fished some. I think she always, based off stories she's told me, felt like she was left out of it at times. And um, they disagreed with her on where she might go if she wanted to go catch some fish. Mm -hmm. And so she always said that she went down to the store in Twin Bridges, picked up some fishing equipment and went to the exact spot where they told her she wouldn't catch anything and came home with a mess of fish. That's great. And so she taught you even, I mean, just not just how to catch fish, but kind of the anatomy of fish too. That's like one step beyond. That's Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And I think her uh, her interest in nature and just in the wildlife and, you know, we had most of the time we had walked to wherever we were going to fish and she would really take time to stop and look at the birds or deer or whatever we come upon. And mm-hmm. I think her interest in all that really kind of rubbed off on me over the years. Oh, that's great. Um, so, you know, you talked about over the years and, and um, you're still young, but, you know, getting to this point in your career, in your career development, um, sometimes there's, hurdles you have to face, you know, and I'm just curious, are there any hurdles that you you really found tough to jump over given, you know, the track analogy here, um, that, uh, that, that you might want to share with folks? Yeah. So I think I touched on how I didn't really know for sure what I wanted to do when I came to college. I was interested in fish and wildlife, but really didn't have a a path that I intended to follow. Um, I didn't exactly know where I was uh, hoping to end up with my degree. I just knew that I wanted to go to college and get a degree and had chosen this field. Um, I think the uh, professors and faculty here at MSU are really helpful and they get people in to talk to you about their professional careers in the field and through that, I started to learn about fisheries, which up to that point, I really didn't know that there was much going on with fisheries. I didn't know that there was as much research going on as there is, and um, I was really just kind of naive to it. So I think that all the um, opportunities I had to learn more about fisheries here really helped me to eventually get over that hurdle. I don't know if I exactly jumped, but <laughs> eventually I got over it. Yeah, yeah. And so just the, there, there was a spark by going to some of the research seminars, talking to some of the professors and things like that, that um, I guess there was a spark to, to maybe move you further, but there was also just kind of a spark that, of understanding that there wasn't, you didn't know that these things even occurred or that that was a career opportunity. Yeah, exactly. The um, gaining the knowledge of the, the careers were out there was a big part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just wondering how we could, you know, we as a, as a 
uh, profession could do a better job of letting people know that this is a career opportunity um, before you get into, you know, your, your third or fourth year in, in uh, an undergraduate education. And I don't, I don't know. I mean, part of that might be tough from, and, and, and I don't know if this is true or not, but part of it might be that, you know, you grew up in a very rural location. So maybe that had something to do with it. But I'm now that I said that, I almost think it's the opposite that urban areas might have more kids in urban areas might have less of an understanding that this is a career opportunity. Yeah, I think definitely where you grow up and the things you're exposed to play a role in it. Um, some places do have good programs, even in high school, where they're teaching kids about ecology and giving them opportunities to talk to professionals in the field. Um, but then also I think things just like this podcast give the opportunity for people to hear about the research that's going on out there and really see that it's um, something that people are doing and that there are jobs out there involved with it. Mm-hmm. I'm here with Tanner Cox, and he's a graduate student at Montana State University in the Department of ecology. So Tanner, um, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, the research that you're working on. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I'm studying hatchery origin pallid sturgeon. Um, Pallid sturgeon are species found in the Missouri and Mississippi and Yellowstone rivers and some of the tributaries associated with those rivers. And they've been listed as an endangered species since 1990 because they really aren't doing uh, super well. They have issues with recruitment, and there's a decline in the abundance of these fish in, the, in their native waters. So what do you mean by hatchery origin? I mean, I, I, I'm, I, mean, I know what those two words mean, that, and, but were they in the hatchery for quite a few years before they were released or... You know, I know in some hatchery situations, fish are released as, as uh, like very small, what they call might call fingerlings or something like that. Yeah, so the um, hatchery program for pallid sturgeon has been really successful over the years, and they've released both really young, um, close to uh, larval stage pallid sturgeon, and also some yearling pallid sturgeon. I believe that. These fish that I'm really tracking and studying, they were uh, 1997-year class pallid sturgeon, and they were released in 1998. So they would actually be yearlings when okay. they were initially put into the river. So they're pretty old now. Yeah, so yeah. they're uh, what, roughly 21 years yeah, old now. Tw- yep, yeah, 21, 22. Um, and so you're studying the, that specific year class of hatchery origin, pallid sturgeon. And so um, what's the interest with that year class? Yeah, so the reason I'm really focusing in on them is um, after recruitment failure began to occur, they're the first year class of fish that were uh, raised in a hatch, or uh, they're the first year class of fish that originated from a hatchery and were placed in the river. So there's a large gap between the uh, wild fish that might be 50 years old and these uh, younger fish. And because pallid sturgeon are long-lived and extremely late to mature, 
a lot of these 1997-year uh, class fish are just reaching sexual maturity. So we're taking the opportunity to observe these fish as they're reaching that point in their life where they're going through puberty and um, reaching a point where they can successfully spawn. Wow. So they're just now becoming sexually mature, and that's 20-some years old. Is that pretty common in sturgeon? Yeah, so all sturgeon species are long-lived and late to mature. Um, the age at first maturity can vary a lot depending on conditions. Um, a fish in a hatchery with perfect conditions might mature much sooner, within 10 years. But in wild, uh, in a natural setting in the river, it's normal to expect these fish to be 15-plus years old before they're able to reach maturity. Mm -hmm. So now you have these uh, hatchery origin fish that are out there, this 1997 year class, and and um, and and you're interested in them. What exactly are you doing with them? So there was a, a research project prior to mine that was attempting to look at where these fish were spawning and uh, describe some of the information on how often they're spawning and that age at first maturity that we were just discussing. And the researchers at the time realized that none of these fish were actually spawning and the fish were reabsorbing their ovarian follicles. Mm -hmm. um, so my research really seeks to explain that a little bit farther and try to determine if it's just a natural thing that might be occurring during the first year that these fish are reproductive, sort of like they're making a practice run, mm -hmm. um, in which case we would think they would spawn at future opportunities. Um, or if maybe something else is going on, like an environmental condition isn't right or something like that. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. And so um, how do you find out whether these fish have spawned or not. Um, I know a little bit about the Missouri River. It's really turbid, so you can't just watch them like you could maybe some other species. So what's kind of the process that you're going through to make these um, determinations? Yeah, so many of these fish are radio tagged, and we're actually able to identify them as unique individuals. And some of those fish that are radio tagged were included in uh, past research, so we know if they've been reproductively active in the past. Um, during my research, we can recapture those individuals, and then we can actually take a small biopsy from their gonad, which we can then look at using histology and determine if they successfully spawned or not by looking for whether there's a location on that gonad where they released their ovarian or their where they would have released their oocyte and that'd be known as a post ovulatory follicle or if not then there would be um, the oocytes would still be in that gonad and they would be in a state where they're being degraded and resorbed by the fish wow so so you're then um, um, you have to capture the fish you do this little uh, minor biopsy, surgical biopsy, and then you recapture them again. And so you're getting to know these fish pretty well, huh? Yeah, exactly. And I try to capture the fish prior to spawning season to determine if they're uh, reproductively active that year or not. And then again, after spawning season to do that test as to whether they would have spawned or not. 
So we're spending a lot of time with these fish. <laughs> and are there some fish that are really easy to capture and other fish that are really tough? Maybe some fish, uh, you know, to be um, kind of silly, some fish actually don't, you know, don't mind. They might want to come up and see Tanner Cox. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think some of them seem like they miss me a little bit. But um, there's definitely some out there that seem like they've, I don't know if maybe they learn what a net's like maybe they learn to associate a wall coming down the river as a bad thing or what the mechanism is but there's certainly some that are really tricky to catch Mm -hmm. and so just so everybody knows that's listening that this is an endangered species and so um, the protocol that you have when that fish gets on on the boat there's very strict protocol on how you have to handle and and um and, and do procedures on those fish and get them back in the river as soon as possible. Yeah. And it's, it's really, um, it's really interesting how we have everything set up in order to try and do that. And I've heard other people working with pallet sturgeon refer to it as controlled chaos because (laughs) it's so exciting when we finally catch one of them that we've been targeting and, um, we certainly don't want to cause any harm and we want to follow those protocols. So it's just very rapid trying to get everything ready, get the job done and send the fish back to the river where it came from. Yeah, that's great. So you have had um, a field season, I understand. And I'm just wondering um, from that first field season, if you've discovered anything, I mean, can you tell us, uh, what you've learned that we didn't already know about the species or, or the species in this river uh, above Fort Peck Reservoir in Montana. Yeah, so I mentioned a little bit earlier about how uh, previous research had, so- had shown that these fish weren't successfully spawning. And this year we were really excited. We had uh, more hatchery origin fish reproductively active this year than had been seen ever in the past. Um, I think we had six reproductively active fish that we were following. And and that's six females? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And we uh, were able to determine that three of those fish had successfully spawned. So that was extremely exciting. And in this part of the river, we actually hadn't saw that with any fish. Even the wild fish hadn't been documented as successfully spawning. That's um, That's outstanding. So it gives you maybe some hope that recovery above Fort Peck Reservoir might be in the works? Yeah, it was it was very exciting and reassuring to see that as um, that's definitely one of the things that's going to be needed for recovery. And we also, as we're tracking these fish, saw them exploring some reaches of river um, that they previously hadn't been using to our knowledge. Mm-hmm. So that's also really exciting that they could potentially be spawning in more areas which could hopefully help lead to recovery. Yeah. And so, I mean, you found that, that they were spawning in the, in the Missouri river. And that's the first time that had been documented. Just if you could carry that a little bit further for us, if you, you know, you had your crystal ball, what would be the best thing that you could discover? Could it get any better than they are spawning in the Missouri river? Yeah, I think um, in a perfect world, we'd find out that, you know, we might figure out why they haven't been recruiting and it might be something simple like uh, water temperature or something that could be controlled by the upstream dams. And 
Um, you know, that'd be the ultimate thing because we'd be able to then just manipulate that and uh, we'd definitely be on the road to recovery. But I think, um, I think that that's a little bit unlikely that we just find one thing that's going to solve the whole problem. Um, so, you know, really any discoveries that we make during this research and anything that we can add to the current body of literature for this species, I think will be helpful to recovery. Yeah, that's, uh, that's exciting. And, and man, it's gotta be so much fun to work on, um, a species like that, an iconic large river species in that part of uh, Montana. It's a beautiful place. I, I've been there a few times and so, uh, very pretty. So, um, lucky to, to be working on that species in that part of the river. So, uh, kind of the, not kind of, it is the last question or a little softball question here. Um, what's your favorite animal plant or you could pick one of each if you want. Yeah. So right now I'm really big on alligator gar. (laughs) (laughs) So why right now with alligator gar? Um, I just think that they're, uh, probably one of the coolest fish around, one of the coolest freshwater fish. Um, I was actually looking up a little bit of information about them the other day, and it was uh, just kind of unbelievable to imagine a freshwater fish coming out of the water and eating things like ducks. Um, (laughs) And, you know, they're a huge, uh, old... um, what do they call it? Some people call them like a living fossil, which people also refer to pallid sturgeon as. And it's just really cool to see these um, ancient like creatures on earth today. Well, Tanner, um, thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. And I wish you the best in your studies at Montana State University and your research on pallid sturgeon. Yeah, Chris, my pleasure. And thank you for listening to today's Voices of Conservation Science, and please spread the word about this podcast.